In terms of transportation infrastructure, we need to use the science of where to define success. Where we put EV charging stations determines how successful electrification and transportation really is. Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Our podcast. You just heard Ali Kelly, Executive Director at The Ray, highlight the importance of the geographic approach in planning and building sustainable transportation infrastructure. Esri CMO Mariana Cantor investigates the usefulness of geospatial technology and location analytics in making the most of government investment in infrastructure. Hi, Ali, and welcome to the Esri and the Science Aware podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted and excited to be here. Ali, we know, I think everybody knows at this point, that the U.S. is poised to make a gigantic investment in the infrastructure. And the success or failure of this investment will define the economic and social health of our country for decades to come. I know you're a trailblazer of smart, innovative solutions in transportation and renewable energy. Let's just start with what challenges do we need to overcome to be successful as we're modernizing our infrastructure? This infrastructure outlay is going to shape the competitiveness of the United States. These are the other countries in the world like China who we compete with around electrification, autonomous mobility and transportation, et cetera. So let me start big picture. We're talking about sectors that have not traditionally worked together or maybe not even traditionally worked well together. And so specifically, you know, energy and transportation, high tech and transportation. Uh, I oftentimes relate this to middle school dances where the boys are lined up on one side of the gym and the girls are lined up on the other. And how do you get them to dance in the middle? It's very similar because these are sectors that don't necessarily know much about each other, right? Transportation agencies pay utility bills for sure, but understanding deep decarbonization of the energy sector is not in the purview of transportation. And similarly, understanding deep decarbonization of transportation is not something that the energy sector has been concerned with. So you're asking them to share space. You're asking them to share um, mission alignment Um, You're asking them to think about sharing infrastructure and assets. And so big picture, this is a challenge for us. And I want to give some credit where credit is due to um, the current administration bringing together a joint office of DOT and DOE for the first time. I think that's going to help a lot. The feds are leading by example. If you wanted to get into some more specific and you know, kind of the finer details of what the challenges are. Um, One challenge with respect to electrification is a 1960s era U.S. code section that prohibits commercialization on the interstate system. Um, Because we cannot engage in commerce on the interstate system, that means that we can't have EV charging stations at DOT truck parking. We can't have EV charging stations at rest stops. We can't even have EV charging lanes on the interstate system as a wireless dynamic charging technology. And um, this isn't going to sink the infrastructure bill and the objectives, but it's certainly going to make things difficult for state DOTs in figuring out how to properly spend the investment 
and the strategy around how the investment enables truly a network of EV charging infrastructure in urban and rural areas across the country. And we need to allow for public-private partnerships that will clear the way for commercialization of EV charging and also commercialization of hydrogen fueling stations for future hydrogen fuel cell heavy-duty vehicles. Um, This is a giant challenge because it involves working with Congress to change um, established U.S. law. And why do we need to do it? Because transportation and energy are changing. Those sectors are disrupted. Um, They are modernizing and they are changing. And we need to make sure that we modernize policy in parallel. Let's put a bit of a finer point on the need for electric power and this EV charging grid or infrastructure that you're talking about. For example, we in the U.S. expect 18.7 million electric vehicles by 2030, right? So we're going to see tremendous demand on the current grid. Uh, And I also recently learned that a single mega charger for a class eight truck will draw the same amount of power as 1,200 homes. So it's massive demands on the electric grid. And you're saying essentially what I'm hearing is that the grid is not really ready or prepared or equipped to meet this exponentially increasing demand. That is 100% correct. Um, I think about it as a straw. So there is a demand or a pull on the grid or on our straw, and that is the electrification of everything, right? Let's electrify everything. We need to electrify home appliances and we need to electrify transportation. And this movement is being driven by the climate crisis. So this is what's happening. We're doing this, we are electrify everything. And that is pulling or increasing the demand on one end of the straw, which is the grid. On the other end of the straw, we're trying to put more renewables, wind energy, onshore and offshore, solar energy, as much clean energy as we can to make this transition away from fossil fuel power on our grid. The straw's too small. And we know this, this is data, these are facts. You know, one data point, you can look at the Midwestern grid region, which is called the MISO regional grid. And MISO has canceled or paused 40% of their renewable energy projects because of capacity issues on the grid. So you've got that region of Minnesota, Michigan, Wisconsin, where, oh, there are renewable energy projects that are being proposed, but they are stuck in queue because the straw is too small. We don't have enough grid capacity to onload the clean energy that we need to clean up our grid and go for deep decarbonization of the energy sector. And we also need to onboard that power as quickly as we can because the demand side of the straw, electrify transportation and electrify everything is going to increase and it's going to increase aggressively and in a way that is unabated over the next decade. And the only way to move forward is to get down to the basic issue. The fundamental issue is that we need grid expansion. You know, so what does that mean? Grid expansion, we really haven't seen any in the last 25 years in the United States, and here's why. When somebody proposes a new transmission or distribution line, well, they've got an eminent domain, they've got to take the land, 
And that always ends up in court for decades. And then sometimes the community gets involved and protests a proposed grid expansion. And this is why for over a quarter of a century, the United States has not built any appreciable transmission and distribution expansion. And so in our view at the Ray, we think the only way to act and to act fast to expand the grid and enhance it for that matter with security, resilience, cybersecurity, the only way to do that is to go underground in the public's land. And we have the public's land available on the interstate right of way. Don't have to go to court don't have to disturb the transportation system or the transportation assets. You just go underground with HVAC, high voltage AC or high voltage DC grid lines. And we can do that starting tomorrow. So you're talking about going underground as well as using the right of way that is state owned actually. So you've proven that it's possible with the Department of Transportation in Georgia. So take us through this experience and relate back to this law that you mentioned, which was 1960 or something like this, where it prevents, uh, which I did not understand fully, it prevents us from using some of that land. So I'm going to start with the 1960s law, which was established when the Eisenhower interstate system was established. And they basically wanted to make sure that there wasn't private profiteering off of the substantial public investment in the Eisenhower interstate system. So where they started was not a bad place. Um, Where we have come to is in 2022, if you stop at a rest area on the interstate system, you can buy a candy bar and soda pop. Um, You can buy a lottery ticket and that is it because commerce is not allowed on the interstate system. Now, I like my candy bar and my soda pop, but what if I also need an electric vehicle charge? Of course, when you get off at the exits, you might find a cracker barrel or a sheets, and those are perfectly acceptable locations for EV charging to be offered. But it's contingent upon those private companies expanding their operations into EV charging because it's their private property and they're the ones who make the decision about what services to offer. We're hamstrung by the private sector moving into EV charging infrastructure, when in reality, what is in the public's interest is also in the public's hands with the public's land. As a public, we hold the rest areas, we hold truck parking areas, we hold park and ride areas, and we also hold the right of way or the roadsides itself. And so we really need to modernize this U.S. code section at a minimum allow for commercial EV charging services on the interstate system. And why? Because this is really about the integrity of the system as it relates to safety. We need to be providing infrastructure over the road for passenger vehicles and medium and heavy duty vehicles, we need to provide the infrastructure that will enable safe passage. And right now we don't have the charging infrastructure across the United States proximate to the interstate system to secure and enable safe passage in an electric passenger vehicle or electric medium and heavy duty vehicles. We need to do this for safety. We need to do this for redundancy of the infrastructure. We need to do it for rural America. We need to do this as a way of leveraging the public's lands 
to ensure safe passage on the interstate system for electric vehicles. It doesn't cut out the truck stop operators like Loves or Bucky's or Flying J. Well, there's enough pie for everyone. Everybody gets pie. There's plenty of pie on the table, but we need to have everyone around the table. This is all hands on deck time. And there's no sense in keeping the public's land from being a part of the solution. So Ali, how did you manage to do this with this legislation in place in Georgia? Well, it's a bunch of exemptions right now. We've got a megawatt of solar on the roadsides and that solar energy being generated is going to the energy grid and it's being sold to customers of Georgia Power. And I'm telling you, we started that project in 2016 and we did not turn it on. We didn't commercialize that project until February of 2020. As they say, we had to go through some stuff. And most of what we went through was commercialization. We had to really fight for this project with the federal government. Um, we became brothers and sisters in arms in the doing of this project, but we had to fight for it to keep it alive. And um, something that the Ray is very proud of is in April of 2021, a year later, the Federal Highways Administration issued sweeping guidance that acknowledged alternative uses of the rights of way for generating clean energy, energy transmission, EV charging, pollinator habitats to support bees and butterflies. Um, all of those uses of the right of way were supported and encouraged and validated by the Federal Highways Administration as priority uses of the right-of-way as important as the transportation use. This is groundbreaking guidance where the federal government finally um, came to the realization that there are uses of the right-of-way that are important to the climate crisis and for that matter, fiber is included as well, undergrounding resilient fiber for communications to bridge the digital divide and um, to support connected and autonomous vehicles on the interstate system. And last year in April, the feds rubber stamped that. They said, you're right, we're gonna do this and we're gonna do it as a priority. And so we're, we are in a uh, time of real change um, and it's changed for the positive, but we have to continue to push. So Ali, we're assuming that maybe our audience knows about this project. Can you describe the project with the uh, Georgia DOT? We have been working with Georgia DOT for the last six years. We've uh, built together 12 projects, I think maybe more than 12 projects now on that 18 mile corridor. And we have built it into a, the premier test bed in the United States for sustainable smart transportation. And now we're sharing the love, just like Ray Anderson did. He told everyone what he was doing at Interface and offered others to help and had an impact on Unilever and Coca-Cola and others. And similarly, we're now working at the Ray um, in 16 states with more than two dozen transportation agencies exporting the success and the innovations from the Ray as quickly as we possibly can across the country. That's the only way to drive change as quickly as we need to. And we need to go quick because of the climate crisis. We need to go quick because of the digital divide. We need to go quick because of global competitiveness. The United States is falling behind in all of those areas. And I, I said this recently to a group of uh, DOT professionals in North Carolina, we believe 
at the Ray that transportation actually holds the key to these solutions. Speaking of innovation and technology, I heard you talk about geospatial technology as being, in a way, a linchpin of transportation infrastructure transformation. Would you talk more about that? So, you know, geospatial technology, and I will use Esri in particular, you know, the importance of you do is that you are the science of where. And in terms of transportation infrastructure, where really defines success. So here's a specific example. Where should we put EV charging stations? Where we put EV charging stations determines how successful electrification and transportation really is. Because number one, we need EV charging stations to be used, to be utilized. And in order to be strategic about where they go, and don't just think about your urban area, we have to think about over the road, rural, the flyover states, we have to think about the whole of the country. And so understanding trends, understanding where vehicles are going, where are trucks stopping for breaks? How long are they stopping for those breaks? That is where we should go with charging infrastructure to support medium and heavy duty electrification. If we care about carbon, we have to care about transportation because transportation accounts for 29% of the US annual greenhouse gas emissions. And if you care about carbon from transportation, you have to care about medium and heavy duty because the MDHD sector accounts for 24% of all transportation carbon. So 24% of the 29% in the US is all in medium and heavy duty. And so the science of where geospatial technology, understanding how to represent where trucks are stopping for how long, creating heat maps so that we understand where we should go with the charging technology, and then utilizing all of these other data layers and geospatial layers, like where is transmission and distribution? Where's the grid, right? Because you mentioned a uh, megawatt charging station, whether we wanna build 350 kW, 500 kW or megawatt, I can guarantee you that we're gonna have to create that infrastructure on the energy side. We don't just have megawatts of power ready to be used by a charging station. We're gonna have to build it all the way back to the pipe as they used to say. And so the science of where defines success in transportation infrastructure today. So technology is not our challenge. The technology is already here. That is a core belief of the Ray, that the technology already exists for us to go zero deaths, zero carbon and zero waste in transportation. The tools are at our fingertips. You mentioned earlier that it is an urgent matter and I think we all share that perspective and it's really going to require one state at a time, one DOT at a time. How optimistic are you that we're actually going to get there to be using the technology available, the innovations available to create sustainable infrastructures around energy and transportation to forge those relationships that you talked about and partnerships? What is your assessment? 
Well, we are furiously optimistic at the Ray. We are working furiously and we remain optimistic. My mama used to say many hands make light work. And so that is what we need through partnerships. Partnerships are many hands and together we make this light work. And I'm gonna give you a, a specific example. So the Ray has a megawatt of pollinator friendly solar on four and a half acres of Federal Highway Georgia DOT property on I-85 at exit 14. It's a productive reuse of an empty and forgotten space. In fact, the space was actually eroded and kind of ugly and it was already cleared of trees and now it's gorgeous, right? It's a gorgeous uh, multiplication of value and a productive reuse of the same space. I can tell that story a hundred times every day. And it's real, but it doesn't move people into a position of action. They don't know how to get to the next step. Just because they've seen one success doesn't mean they know how to start their own success story. And because Esri created the solar mapping tool, we now have the ability to take a transportation agency, whether it's a city, a county, a turnpike, a tollway, a state DOT, Anybody with a transportation system and right of way can come to the Ray and utilize the solar mapping tool to get them into a position of analyzing the roadsides, planning for solar sites, and moving into the community discussion and moving into uh, design and procurement. It is a powerful tool that creates the action step, and we wouldn't be able to activate agencies today if we didn't have a partnership with Esri and if that partnership had not produced cutting edge technology. And so that's what I mean specifically. I don't just mean this metaphorically so that we sleep well tonight. I mean, we need to be partnering together so that this heavy lift becomes light work. The partnerships create the tools, the pathways, the meetings, the conversations, we get to yes, and we have the tools to push the projects. And we need, as the Ray, we say, scale, baby, scale. Let's just scale. Let's go as fast as we can because we're running into we're running into the solutions, right? I mean, these are no regret situation. Nobody is regretting how fast we ran into the solution zone. Um, there's no reason why we can't continue to leverage broad partnerships across the country to make the change that is necessary in the time frame that we are given. Um, but I think we've got to be honest about the challenge. The challenge is not that we don't have the technology. We're not waiting on the tech or the innovation. We are the challenge working in non-traditional partnerships and sectors that have not traditionally worked together, figuring out how we can trust each other and how we can work together and how we can share projects and share infrastructure. Together, we're going to be able to do that with more and more adoption over the next, you know, I think by 2025, you're going to see that all of this disruption and chaos in transportation and in the, and in the energy sector is going to organize itself over the next couple of years into specific pathways of success. And we're going to be in a position to work together to just keep the project pipeline flowing. That was awesome. Thank you very much, Allie. Thank you so much for having me. 
Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. And thanks to Ali Kelly for explaining why geospatial technology is critical to designing and building sustainable infrastructure. If you liked this episode, please share it with a colleague.